Hey there, I'm so excited to tell you about Radiotopia's newest show, The Recipe with Kenji and Deb. Kenji and Deb are two of the best home cooks alive. J. Kenji Lopez-Alt of The Food Lab and The Walk, and Deb Perlman of Smitten Kitchen. Two of my go-tos to make sure I'm getting the perfect recipe for everything from meatballs to muffins. They're pros who obsess over techniques and essential ingredients, so you learn everything you need to create your perfect recipe. You can finally be excited to eat what you make, and maybe even impress your friends and family. Help us welcome the newest show to the Radiotopia family. Find The Recipe with Kenji and Deb on your favorite podcast platform starting February 26th. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Progressive helps you compare direct auto rates from a variety of companies so you can find a great one, even if it's not with them. Quote today at Progressive.com to find a rate that works with your budget. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Hello and welcome to This Day in Esoteric Political History from Radiotopia. My name is Jody Avergan. This day, December 13th, 2011, it technically happened on the 12th, Donald Trump bows out of moderating a Newsmax debate of Republican presidential candidates in Iowa, announcing his decision in a statement saying he would not be participating because he did not want to give up the option of running for president in the 2012 election. Yes, you heard that right. Donald Trump moderating a GOP debate. It almost happened, folks, and it is a good reminder of where Trump was in his career at that time, his relationship with the GOP less than a decade ago, not to mention the state of conservative media at that time. So here to discuss, as always, is Nicole Hemmer of Columbia. Hello, Nikki. Hello, Jody. And our special guest for this episode, um, perfect guest for this episode, New York Times television critic James Ponowazic, author of the book Audience of One, which is all about Donald Trump's relationship with television. It is out in paperback now. James, thank you for joining us on the show. Thank you, Jody. Thank you, Nicole. Um, before we get to Trump and this debate, James, did I read that you're from Michigan? I am from Michigan. Yes. So I'm springing springing this on you. But our last episode was about the Great Toledo War of 1836. Are you aware of the Michigan... Uh, Ohio border dispute. It it got us the Upper Peninsula. There you go. See, and, and our we, guest- we can still argue about whether that was a good deal or not. <laughs> I have a sister who lives in Toledo, so you, you know I, sh- I should probably bow out of that. But yes, I am I am quite familiar with it. Well, we are, and our and our guest was from Ohio, so I felt like we had to have someone from Michigan represent. Uh, well, all is forgiven, okay. more more or less. Well, you came out pretty good in that uh, one. <laughs> the Michigan-Ohio State game was, I understand, was canceled this weekend because of COVID, yeah. so uh, yeah. we, I guess we can bury our differences right. for, for the next few minutes. Um, <laughs> all right. Well, let's let's talk about um, 2011 Donald Trump Newsmax debate, and I have, <laughs> I have many questions about this, including, I just want to start with, you know, what in the world would Donald Trump be like as a moderator of a debate, James? Um, I, you know, I was just wondering about this myself because that you know there there are so many incidents in the political TV history of Donald Trump that that uh, honest to God, uh, until you contacted me about this idea, I had sort of forgotten that it had happened and and went back and looked at looked at my my writing on all this and. I was trying to do the thought exercise of what would Donald Trump be like as a debate moderator, because the thing is, to be an effective interviewer, to be an effective moderator of something, you have to be more interested in the people that you're talking to than yourself. (laughs) 
Like, that's not really Donald Trump. That's not his deal, you know? And that's one thing that's sort of always thrown me off about the speculation about, oh, would Donald Trump maybe want to, you know, host a cable news show after he leaves the White House or something like that? You know, I could I could see him doing talk radio kind of thing where he's monologuing for two hours, but actually pretending to be interested in another human being for an extended period of time is a bigger reach. And so I went back to, well, what was Donald Trump doing at the time? He was at the time the host of Celebrity Apprentice. He had been the host of The Apprentice before that. Of course, one big part of that is the boardroom, which is a type of interview. Now, we should be careful to stress that the difference there is that The Apprentice was taped. And famously, they would shoot hours of boardroom sequences in order to edit it down into something sort of coherent with a narrative and make it seem like the hiring and firing decisions were rational. But he was a sort of interlocutor you know, in, in the boardroom. But what he, what he was doing there, I think, was not so much sort of interviewing as kind of trying to strike sparks off the candidates, you know? He likes conflict. He likes to sort of sow division. Yeah. And so my first thought was, well, Donald Trump was never really interested in moderating a debate. You know, he would not want to do that. Sort of, but I could see it becoming a sort of boardroom type situation where he's not really digging into policy with anybody, but he's like, you know, pitting people against Mitt each Romney, other. Yeah. Newt Gingrich thinks you're a phony. <laughs> you know, what, what do you have to say? You yeah. know, just try to wheedle and dig and strike sparks off people the way that he did in the boardrooms. So, you know, be, because to him, you know, the, the conflict is always the thing. Yeah. I, I don't know, Nicole, you might think differently. No, I absolutely agree. I mean, there's not a role that Donald Trump is less suited for than debate moderator, um, <laughs> especially because that idea of making yourself somewhat invisible is not in his skill set at all. I mean, it would have been entertaining, but it wouldn't have served any of the purposes that a political debate, a presidential debate is supposed to serve. But it served a lot of Donald Trump's needs to be part of this speculation, right? He's as you were saying, hosting Celebrity Apprentice at the time. It's one of the reasons why he supposedly couldn't declare whether he was going to be a presidential candidate because he needed to wait until that season of Celebrity Apprentice wrapped up. But he could hype all of his presidential ambitions at this point in time. And it just kept him in the mix. I mean, this was something at this point that Donald Trump had been doing for well over a decade, yeah. is, is putting his name out there as a potential person who's going to run for president. But nobody takes it seriously oh. because he never actually does it. Going back to the 88 election, yeah. he'd, he'd done it sort of twice at this point, you know, if you count that in the uh, abortive reform party run in 2000. Yeah. yeah. And, and, yeah. and you can even see in the statement that he puts out saying he's not going to participate because he wants to leave the option open. You know, it's, it's a reminder, as we've continued to see, that I think he is He's much more interested in teasing the next thing than actually focusing on the current thing. And if you can use something as a platform by which to forward promote, uh, to use a radio parlance or, you know, to tease, uh, to tease something upcoming and then just jump from like tease to tease, I think that's sort of his, his comfort zone. So one thing I do want to point out about this letter that Donald Trump wrote when he said he wasn't going to participate in this debate, um, towards the end, he says, I must leave all of my options open because above all else, we must make America great again. So in 2011, there he is. Uh, saying we must make America great again. I don't know if either of you have sourced the first time he used it. This is 2011. That feels pretty early to me for hearing him write that. This isn't the rosebud moment. <laughs> is it, James? It's the first one. It's That's really, yeah, Mr. Police, I gave you all the clues. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, no, I mean, 
We know, I'm sure Nicole knows this too, you know, Reagan used the phrase in, in 1980 sure. and then Trump would later say, well, yeah, but he never copyrighted it. <laughs> um, and uh, I think, I, I do seem to recall a story of Trump copywriting the Make America Great Again phrase at some early point, but that is, to my earliest knowledge, I saw him using that. Um, can we start to paint a little picture here? Uh, you know, you wrote about this at the time, James and Nikki, you obviously know this too, but like, Where's Newsmax come into this? Why is Newsmax, what is their role in 2011? And why are they thinking it's a good idea to recruit Donald Trump to moderate their debate? I mean, quickly, you know, Newsmax is sort of a fringy conservative news outlet at the time. It's it's important to note, well, well importance relative to but it, <laughs> hey we chose this, it, chose this as our episode this is important uh that it was not actually the standalone channel that it was today that was going mm-hmm. to be hosting the debate this was actually going to be aired on ion tv which you know tv trivia fact used to be the the pax network uh a sort of uh wholesome slightly conservative oriented broadcast network that evolved into ion and that today still exists and as far as I could tell, is running a Criminal Minds marathon <laughs> uh, as recently as I checked the Fios channel guide. So that has been a whole journey. But, you know, <laughs> News, Newsmax was sort of part of the fringy sphere of conservative media in kind of the sense that Donald Trump was in 2011. That was the year that he you know, famously embraced birtherism, got roasted at the White House correspondence dinner uh, uh, and all that. It, it was like him, a part of the fringe of the Republican Party that would ultimately move t- toward its center. Yeah, fringy but popular, right? It was one of the the top websites on the internet um, and certainly one of the top conservative websites on the internet. It was pulling in 50 to 60 million page views, putting, I think, second only to Fox News in terms of those conservative types of sites. So it was growing in power. And also Donald Trump was friends with Chris Ruddy, who is the sort of founder of Newsmax. So there was a relationship thing there as well. We should also talk about who took Newsmax up on this, because there were only two candidates in this sprawling 2012 presidential primary field who said yes, and that was Rick Santorum and Newt Gingrich. And that's really important because these would be the sort of fringe challengers. Is fringe the right word? I don't know. No, I mean, I, th- I think fringe in in a sense in that the dynamic, as I'm sure you recall of, of the 2012 Republican primary, there was Mitt Romney and everybody else. And the changes in lead among everybody else sort of represented this dynamic that would come to the fore in 2016, which is basically the divide between the establishment Republican Party, you know, the kind of candidate that Republican bigwigs like to think the Republican Party is, and the party that it actually was and was becoming, which was this, you know, sort of very intense royal depth base that kept moving from Gingrich was in the lead this month, Herman Cain the next month, eventually it settled on Rick Santorum. And I think I wrote at the time that it was sort of like there was just kind of this spirit of not Mitt that kept moving mm-hmm. from candidate to candidate. And, you know, with this, a little this, Ron this, Paul this, thrown in there, right? He's he's the sort of third lane. A sprinkling. Almost, yeah. yeah, exactly. You know, Rick Perry, until his brain fell, fell out of his head during one of the Republican debates, was that candidate for a time. And there was this sense of 
this real kind of volatile base heart of the actual voting Republican primary audience that was looking for its candidate and would ultimately find its candidate in 2016 in Donald Trump. But there was this sort of dance that candidates had to go through of, you know, just how much would you embrace that sector of the party? How Mm -hmm. much would you sort of hold it with tongs? And really, Donald Trump was sort of a metonym for that at this point. I mean, that, that's why really, you know, when you talk about what would this debate have been like, it really would have been all about Donald Trump in the sense that this was after birtherism. This was Donald Trump, Fox News, Mondays with Trump guest. It would be about how much are you willing to, what is your position on Donald Trump? How much are you going to run away from him? How much are you going to run toward him? <laughs> and, and, and that sort of mirrored this dynamic in the party. Yeah. Yeah. Can, uh, to that end, can I actually read you the lead of your column from that time? Because I think it's really interesting. You, oh, you can you wrote... read me the lead of my column anytime. Yes. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Uh, <laughs> but you wrote to the list of absolutely crucial wedge issues distinguishing re- the Republican primary candidates this week at a new one. What is your position on Donald Trump? Which you, of course, that would become the issue. I think you were maybe slightly tongue in cheek when you wrote that in 2011. By the time we get to 2015, that is actually the question that the Republican Party has to answer for itself. Um, but. You know, I'm curious also in terms of keeping this Newsmax debate at arm's length, Ron Paul and Mitt Romney were the two who were kind of most forcefully saying, I don't want any part of this. This is debasing. Were they doing that because of Donald Trump or were they doing that because they were a little unsure of this new media ecosystem that was bubbling up post Tea Party, post birtherism, you know, et cetera, et cetera? I mean, I think it was a mix of of both. And those two things are are related, too. So there was a sense that it was going to be a sideshow because it's Donald Trump. If you go back and you look at the moderators of all the other debates, they're all journalists. They're all people who are part of this political elite sphere. And here's Donald Trump, who is a reality television star. Um, And then there is the what he represented and what Newsmax represented. Those kind of divisions that James was talking about, those weren't just within the Republican Party, this establishment versus base, but it was starting to burble up in conservative media as well. So where Brett Baer and Megyn Kelly would be legitimate sort of moderators um, coming from Fox News, it wasn't as clear that Newsmax was that. But Fox News was beginning to emerge as establishment conservative media, something that these more grassroots or base candidates were pushing back against. So in 2012 in the debates, you have Newt Gingrich and Rick Santorum, both of who had to resign from Fox News in order to run for president, attacking Fox News for being too pro-Mitt Romney. Um, And that dynamic is something that Donald Trump would pick up on in 2015 and 2016 and use in the same way. That kind of conservative elite is something that has to be overthrown. Um, Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, at at the time and going back for a while, Fox News did, maybe now even to some extent still does, had to present itself or tell itself that it was at least in part a straight news organization that happened to employ conservative commentators and so would, would handle its election coverage and its moderation of debates as such. And it was increasingly competing without, you know, Newsmax, uh, Breitbart at the time, it was Andrew Breitbart's Breitbart, all these conservative outlets whose attitude is, you know, no, they're telling this fervent base, we are all in on your side. We're going to give you the red meat that you want. Uh, we're not going to be ashamed of you. We're not going to hide from you, and we're not going to, you know, hold that that as a distance. Uh, we are all in, and you should be asking your candidates if they are all in. 
and yeah. they're becoming you know, all these sort of like sort of shibboleth kind of tests, you know, will you go on this program? Will you do this debate? Will you seek the endorsement of this figure that are kinds of, of ways of proving one's bona fides to this increasingly important force in the party and in conservative media? And something that actually happens later in the 2012 campaign when Mitt Romney goes to Las Vegas to accept the endorsement of Donald Trump, right? Even in this moment, um, he might not be sitting down to talk to Donald Trump in a debate, but he sees him as a a ring he has to kiss. Um, Yeah, there was this whole Trump primary where the various candidates were some openly and some, as you say, sort of skulkingly, like Mitt Romney, uh, seeking Trump's endorsement because of the recognition of the kind of power that what he represented held in the Republican Party as it was, in the Republican primary as it was, as opposed to the Republican primary as they would like it to be. I think you can't underestimate in, in sort of the historical context of its time how important Trump's involvement with birtherism is, right? Because this was the same year. Uh, 2011, in the spring, Trump, through his Twitter account and then later through his TV appearances, which then picked up on the news that his Twitter account created, uh, brought you know this racist conspiracy theory into mainstream media. It was later debunked. And to your broad, casual news audience, this was a humiliation of Trump, a repudiation of him. He was shown to be wrong. He was shown to be a buffoon, et cetera, et cetera. But it was not that to the conservative base. It was not that to the people who were watching Mondays with Trump every week on Fox and Friends. This was Donald Trump showing that he was one of them. Right. Like that's an important statement saying, you know, I am of you. I believe all the stuff. I believe the stuff from the Internet. I'm not going to be like John McCain going up in front of a town hall and sheepishly saying that, no, Barack Obama's not a Muslim. I'm for 100 percent of the stuff. And, and it, you know, it was it was kind of a sign that need of Republicans to court Trump at the time that increasingly you wouldn't be able to hold this stuff at a distance and be viable in the Republican Party. And, you know, if we speculated about what this would have looked like had Trump moderated, we probably would have had a question about birtherism uh, at a GOP primary debate, which I don't think we ever actually had in a formal debate. Um, can we start to to bring this, spin this forward? Because, I mean, so much of what you're describing feels like this moment that we're living in right now, where we have, you know, this relationship with Fox News, which is trying to play both sides, and then this fracturing of the sort of everything at the sub-Fox level. And as much as we talk about this Breitbart Newsmax moment of 2011-2012, it was ultimately Fox News that was the kingmaker for Donald Trump. I think that's fair to say. And so I'm curious, now we're feeling in this moment again, like, oh, there's all these other options. Trump might make these moves and so forth. And I wonder how much we should look back and just be like, no, Fox News is still going to be king no matter what else is going on at that at that second level. So I, I would push back a little bit on the idea that Fox was a kingmaker for Trump. Actually, you know, Trump rose up in the polls and there was some resistance at Fox News to his candidacy, not across the board, but there was definitely resistance there. There was that big fight between Fox and Donald Trump in early 2016. And what ultimately happened is that Fox News shifts more towards Trump. 
right? But there's some behind the scenes stuff with Roger Ailes and Megyn Kelly trying to get her to back down. And then after Donald Trump wins, you see a shuffling of the lineup at Fox to make Trumpier. Um, So Tucker Carlson and Laura Ingram become part of the lineup. But just in terms of the power of, you know, and the audience of that message, I think is what I'm trying to say. Just like it is the biggest network by far. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, I, you know, I think Nicole is absolutely right. I mean, the way I put it in my book, I believe, was that originally Trump needed Fox to get access to its audience, but then he won its loyalty and Fox needed Trump to get access to its own audience. But, you know, However, to, you know, to your point, I think, you know, Fox will shift its message with the change, one election result, one administration, you know, to another, but Fox stays Fox, which is why I'm always a little skeptical of the idea of somebody, be it Donald Trump or Chris Ruddy or whatever, seriously unseating Fox in, in its position in, you know, conservative cable news, particularly partly simply for boring industry reasons of how hard it is to start a competing cable network, you know, and it is much more likely because, you know, Fox has done this from Clinton administration through Bush administration, through Obama administration, through Trump administration to sort of kind of in the same way that MTV will, would seize on one movement in the youth culture after another to kind of figure out what the thing is that's happening in conservative culture and then being that. But, you know, obviously, as you say, the latest test now is, will you say that Joe Biden was elected president (laughs) or are you going to go all in and indulge this fantasy that we want to hear that, you know, no, in in fact, it's it's up in the air and probably Donald Trump won, which is the sort of latest grounds for that battle now. Yeah, I think that there is a real challenge in... uh trying to displace Fox News from the center of that universe, because something like Newsmax or OAN at the moment is pulling a fraction of a fraction, right? The, the Fox News audience is not huge. It's big for cable news. But the the people who are Fox watchers who then reject it for Newsmax and OAN is a small audience. And it's not clear that those networks are drawing from any other pool of potential viewers. Well, when Trump then so sort of says, Stop watching Fox. Go watch OAN, um, OANN, or or Newsmax. Is he doing that mostly to try and scare Fox, or is he actually trying to build up these these rivals? Uh, to me, I feel that that is sort of a a working the refs, asserting his power, expressing his frustration kind of deal. You know, as far as building up. OAN or Newsmax as legitimate competitors to Fox. Honestly, partly, I, I just looking at it as, as a TV critic, I find it sort of hard to imagine because I think one thing that people underestimate in Fox's success is that it just makes very slick, professionally produced TV. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think a lot of people, you know, have seized rightly on the political insights that Roger Ailes had in finding the parallels between cable programming and political playing to the base. But also Fox and, you know, if you talk to Fox diehard fans, they'll talk about how, you know, it, the news is just kind of more exciting on, on Fox. And it, it's hosts are telegenic and the graphics are great. Whereas some of these other, you know, competitor programs look like they're produced in a basement by comparison. And, us, and by the way, Donald Trump, right, the guy who is all about appearances and screens and how things look on a TV screen, the guy who plays back his TV appearances with the sound off to see how he looked, he's as well aware of that as anybody. You know, I don't think that he looks at OAN or Newsmax and thinks they're giving people the the pazing that they're used to getting from Fox. So 
As we start to wrap up here, I mean, I'm sure this is the question each of you get asked over and over and over. And we're a history podcast, but I will ask you, uh, kind of, what's your sense, Nikki? Um, you can start of what Trump does next, from a, I guess, from an overall perspective. But assuming that he's going to do some sort of media play, uh, what do you think comes next? You know, it's a really interesting question for a lot of the reasons that we just talked about. Like, he wouldn't be a good cable news host. He doesn't have the money to start a genuine competitor in the cable news space. He doesn't have the work ethic to show up five days a week for three hours to have a radio show. So what does he do? He does what he always does. Right. He probably five days a week <laughs> for three hours is, is yeah. work ethic. I just want to put it. Yeah. Just I mean, that. comparatively. <laughs> yes, fair enough. Um, so I think he does what he has always done, which is he licenses his name to some Something, pulls some money down from that, continues to show up all the time on places like Fox News um, and those shows that he really likes. But who knows? He always keeps us on our toes. Yeah, I think if he could get some media outlet to pay him to slap his brand on it, which, you know, as you say, since since the 80s had, had basically been his business, I could see him doing that. Besides being a TV you know, talk host. I also could not imagine him, as some people have suggested, building a Trump TV network from scratch because th- that's just incredibly difficult. Yeah. Um. And his inclination, generally, I mean, not to, not to undersell him. Obviously, like you don't get elected president by not being good at anything. But I think his inclination is to do the thing that comes easy to him and that he has an aptitude, which may just be, you know, if he doesn't, say, get some sort of Rush Limbaugh-like gig monologuing for a couple of hours, may just be continuing to do the rallies and raising grievance money and collecting adulation and influence and just kind of seeing how it plays out. But, you know, I think he wants attention more than media moguldom. And he'll take the route, the, the most direct route to that. This is a man who knows how to separate people from their money. So he'll find a way to do that. And the media part will probably take care of itself. There you go. Um, Okay, so as we wrap up here, um, James, as you may know, at at the end of some of these shows, we do also on this day stuff. Um, We have a big list of other things that have happened on December 12th. The one that we do want to flag will be interesting to listeners um, because in 2000, this was the date on which the Supreme Court released its decision in Bush versus Gore. So if people have in the back of their heads that clock of how long it takes for an actually close, actually contested election to resolve itself, we have reached that moment and nevertheless a not close, but still contested, not really contested election in 2020 continues. Um, but this is a just sort of nice reminder of how we've reached that moment and how we have passed that moment with 2020 <laughs> chugging along. Um, okay, that brings us to the end of the show. Uh, James Ponawazik, thank you so much for doing this. The book is Audience of One. It is out in paperback now. Thank you so much. Thanks. It was a lot of fun. And Nicole Hammer, thanks to you as always. And we do plug your book from time to time, Nikki, and we should do it here because it is Messengers of the Right um, and is all about the rise of conservative media. So go read Nikki's book too. But Nikki, thank you as always. I will take that plug. Thanks, Jody. This Day in Esoteric Political History is a proud member of Radiotopia from PRX. Radiotopia is an independent network of independent shows, artist-driven, and often listener-supported. So if you would like to support this show directly, you can do so at thisdaypod.com. There's a form there. You can give a one-time donation. You can become a recurring member. Find that form at thisdaypod.com. Our researcher and producer is Jacob Feldman. Our producer is Brittany Brown. If you have any questions or comments about the show, email us thisdaypod at gmail.com my name is Jody Avergan thanks again for listening and we'll see you soon 
Support for this day in esoteric political history comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software or just want to know what you could be missing, then you'll need to join the millions of others who have switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com slash this day. That's odoo.com slash this day. Odoo, modern management made simple. It is, as you may have heard, an election year. But do you feel like you have a lot of choices? Here are the new candidates, same as the old candidates. How did we get here again? The fact is our democracy is broken. We can all feel it and there's data to back it up too. A Princeton University study found that public opinion has near zero impact on what laws are passed. You know what does have an impact though? Money. You can call it lobbying, you can call it super PAC spending, you can call it corruption. But luckily, there are things we can do right now to fix this broken system. This podcast is part of the Pro-Democracy Podcast Coalition, a group that's banding together to make our democracy better. We're working with Represent Us, the largest grassroots organization fighting to end corruption city by city and state by state. You can join the movement too. Go to represent.us slash podcast to find out more. Radiotopia. Radiotopia. 